Today's episode is brought to you exclusively by our Patreon supporters. Stay tuned to the end credits to learn all about the great juju and greater swag that you can get by supporting this podcast, and head on over to patreon.com slash lonelypalette. But first, the episode. What we're looking at is concentric circles in colors of red, blue, and yellow. And it, some people could think it's a Target, but it really doesn't look like a Target. But you might be able to find it at a store like Target. I see a bullseye, and it's very imperfect. There are clearly well-defined lines, but the paint is uneven and runny. It looks like something you'd see on the side of a barn, almost. Color choice is not what I would expect to see on a bullseye, typically. When I think bullseye, I think probably red and white instead of yellow and blue. Uh, Very bright, though. The reds, the yellows and blues. It reminds me of the circus, kind of. Very, Very bright. But it also looks like an optical illusion, kind of. I think that if you get a little bit further away, it looks like the rings around... I mean... It looks like a bullseye, but the rings around kind of just look like they're moving closer or further away, depending on where you're standing. It captured my eyes. You know, like if you walk in a room, this is probably the thing that would draw you to, because it's, it's the color combination and the way that it's like, okay, look at me, this is, you know, this is a target. And I think I'm in a men's clothing store, and I'm looking at the front of a t-shirt. I really just like this. I think it's, it's commercial in a bad way. Well, it kind of reminds me of um, doing paper mache in, like, elementary art class. It's kind of fun because, like, it being this close makes it feel more childish because, like, you know, like, the drips of paint, like, just, like, reminds me of, like, when you just, like, painting something in art class and you just get paint just everywhere and it's just a whole gobs of fun. The texture is kind of created through, like, the different shades of each color, but, like, also I feel like there's actual texture to it because of like the layers of paint or like different yeah, thicknesses. I was say, you can see the layers of the colors and, yeah. it, and in some areas it's kind of stripped away so you can see the layers underneath. Oh, it's some newspaper yes. in it too, <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because it, it, I want to like be able to read the newspapers but I can't. So it, <laughs> that's just my, right straight where my mind went. I was like I have to look and see what <laughs> they all say but, but you can't which actually I think is more interesting in a way. You move in, and the bright colors and the newspapers, it just feels, I don't know why. I get that feeling of, like, sensational journalism and that, that pushing. And the targets, too, you know? Oh, yeah. As if you're targeting someone. Mm-hmm. And as you get closer, the other thing that's interesting is the colors kind of draw you into the center. So it's almost like you're being pulled into the center. And I also, now that you get closer, when you see the newspaper behind, it all of a sudden captures my imagination a little bit more. This is The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses, one painting at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai. Episode 22. Jasper John's Target from 1961. 
There's a famous painting that you've probably seen before, either because you've seen the original, or reproductions of the original, or because you've seen one of the endless bits of satire at its expense. It's by the surrealist René Magritte, you know, the apple-in-front-of-the-face guy, and it's a painting of a pretty realistic-looking pipe. Underneath, in cursive, is written, Sassines pas un pipe. This is not a pipe. And on the one hand, yeah, we kind of knew that already. Of course it's not an actual pipe. It's a painting of a pipe. You can't hold or smoke this pipe, so Magritte's right. It's not a pipe, it's a painting. On the other hand, thanks, jackass. This is why people don't trust modern artists. All we're trying to do is play by the rules that you've given us. One of the most basic of which is that it's okay to say that paintings of things are the things. And now you're delighting in making us feel like morons. The thing is, though, Magritte's painting of the pipe and his subsequent handwritten rejection of that pipe is actually saying something incredibly profound about the nature of representation on a canvas, even if it's kind of an obnoxious way to do it. There have been multiple translations of the title of this painting. Some have translated as the perfidy of images, some as the treachery of images, which are both fairly forceful ways of saying the same thing, that images lie. Think about it. Art lies to us all the time. We look at a painting of a pipe and describe it with all the properties of a pipe and judge its artistic merit by how accurately it captures a pipe when really it's a painting of a pipe and not a pipe at all. Just like that landscape isn't the actual place and that portrait isn't the actual person. They're just representations, just facsimiles. And I can't stress this enough that, yeah, we know this, but we also conveniently forget it. And that feels significant. Artists of the mid-20th century certainly thought so. And they were a new kind of artist. One who not only takes a step back from the world that he or she was supposed to be rendering and responding to, but also a step back from the art world to try to understand what it had been evolving into. This was a generation of artists who never knew an art world without Magritte's pipe, or Marcel Duchamp's urinal before that, or Papa Cezanne's apples, which started it all. These artists were born into a world that already saw the canvas as an experimental testing ground, and subsequently found themselves floating in a kitchen sink without a rudder. I mean, if you're an artist in post-World War II America, think about the legacy that you've inherited, and the art world that you're surrounded by. You have Dada compromising the integrity and the dignity of the art object in favor of expanding its conceptual meaning. In short, you live in a world where it's okay that a urinal has been placed in a museum as a stand-in for a much larger artistic idea. And you have pop art, blurring the boundaries between art and advertisements, design, newspapers, commerce. In short, high art and pop culture have irrevocably merged. And simultaneously, you have abstract expressionism leading the high art charge, eschewing objects and representation altogether, 
and taking up entire walls of museums with its emotional angst and spiritual exploration, care of superstar artists like Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko. The art world, teeming as it was with genius, had no real conceptual center beyond a general consensus that, quite literally, what happens on the canvas stays on the canvas. This is not a pipe. We're not gonna keep pretending that paintings are something that they aren't. And we're not gonna give them the opportunity to keep lying to us. The idea that the role of art was to be a perfect illusionistic likeness of a thing, or a person, or a place, and that the conventional Renaissance ideal of art being a window onto the world, basically, well, went out the window. Because no matter how good an artist you are, that painting of a pipe will never be a pipe. And it's time we shifted our starting point, our expectations of what art is. So, if you're a conceptual neo-dataist with abstract pop art sensibilities like Jasper Johns, where do you even start? Johns isn't exactly the magpie art world poser that I'm making him sound like. But like so many mid-century artists who broke the mold, he's just difficult to categorize. He was born in 1930 in Augusta, Georgia, and arrived on the New York art scene in 1954 after a brief stint at the University of South Carolina, the Parsons School of Design, and Japan during the Korean War. Once in New York, he then hooked up, both literally and figuratively, with the abstract artist Robert Rauschenberg, and together with fellow conceptual artist and composer John Cage, they proceeded to explore and reshape their contemporary art world in light of this newfound starting point of the surface of the canvas, of how that image of a pipe wasn't a pipe. And they argue that if you, the viewer, think that it is a pipe, then take a long, hard look at the unconscious expectations that you bring to a canvas, at how you read symbols and shapes and tell yourself a story about what it all adds up to. The awareness and even exploitation of this story was John's artistic bread and butter. His goal was, in his words, to quote, artistically initiate a dialogue through his artwork that was meant to be resolved within the mind of the viewer. To present a viewer with inert graphic imagery and then watch our associations bring it to life. In other words, he's pointing out that objects and ideas are two separate things that we simultaneously and unconsciously merge all the time. So what happens when we separate them? Or at least recognize that they are separate? If this sounds at all familiar, it's because we've actually seen this before. We've looked at what happens when artists separate object and idea. Remember in episode 17, when we looked at Marcel Duchamp and Dada, and how Dadaists examined what happened when language is divorced from meaning. It becomes nonsense, sounds, childish babbling, the pleasure of the feel of the words on your tongue. Johns is most often described as a neo-Dadaist because he's 
basically doing the same thing, except with images. He takes a series of symbols, quote, things the mind already knows, like targets, flags, maps, letters, numbers, symbols that are so commonplace that they're overlooked as aesthetic images on their own, and yet they still carry powerful symbolic and conceptual weight every time we look at them. They carry language and landscape and meaning. And then he waits for our experiencing of this symbolism to do the rest. Take the American flag, for example, the painting series that made him famous. We don't actually think about the visual pleasure that we get from its uniform stars and stripes, or how vibrant red, white, and blue actually look together. But you do get a visual image that carries an incredible amount of meaning, loaded with associations that are subjective and variable. Think about how different the American flag is to a World War II vet, or a Vietnam vet, or an American after November 2016. It's both nationalism and imperialism. It's both pride and oppression. And it's also just stars and stripes. Straightforward, neutral shapes that we learned in kindergarten. And what Johns is saying is that symbols are simultaneously representational and abstract, both conceptual, the idea of nationalism as represented by a flag, and inert aesthetic shapes, just stars and stripes. There is, of course, a difference between the language of the Dadaists and the images of Johns, because sometimes a painting of a thing, even when you separate it from its intended function, can still function as the thing itself. Our projection of meaning onto an otherwise static image consequently blurs the boundaries between the art object and the object it's rendering. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, think about it. A painting of an American flag is just that, a painting. And yet you can't say you wouldn't feel uncomfortable if someone set it on fire. And this brings us to Target, which is, of course, a painting of a target. But since an actual target is just an image of circles on a surface anyway, it begs the question, is this a painting of a target or actually a target? Johns could add some impish French text declaring that this is not a target, meaning, of course, that it's just a painting of one. But to be fair, if we wanted to, we could use it for target practice, which admittedly would work a lot better than trying to smoke the Magritte painting. It might get you kicked out of the Art Institute, but this painting of a target would still perform the function of an actual target. So let's think about the function of an actual target. What are your initial associations when you see one? Weaponry, aim, zeroing in, an impending act of violence, a bullseye, get the hell out of the way. It's not calming, it's not safe. And yet, it's also a series of concentric circles that could easily be seen as non-representational abstract art, which you really only notice when it's rendered as a painting of a target. And then these trippy and elegant circles become more clearly artistic and even calming when you stand up close. You can lose yourself in it the same way that you give yourself over to a Pollock. 
the repetition fixates your eye, and suddenly the optical illusion is hypnotizing you into a trance, like the opening credits of The Twilight Zone. And you'd never experience this if you weren't up close to it, which is something that you would never do with an actual target. And yet, here you are, close enough to see the waxen surface and falling zen-like into the rings. The target is neutralized of its potent meaning, and John's suddenly earns his abstract artist stripes. But is this abstract really? Something else you notice when you go up close is how built up the surface of the canvas is. John's canvases always feel like they're constructed more than they're painted. And he was famous for integrating objects and pieces parts into his work, in case you were wondering why his cameo on The Simpsons was pretty much exclusively just him stealing things and saying yoink. First, you'll notice the fragments of newspaper painted into the surface, which add an interesting pop art layer of specificity and politics, like his contemporary Andy Warhol did. Nothing is more time-bound and disposable than a newspaper, which is an interesting addition to something that is supposed to evoke the timelessness of abstract shapes. Furthermore, Johns mixes the paint with encaustic, a thick wax-like medium that stiffens and preserves the autonomy of every individual brushstroke. So let's break this down. With these circles, he's suggesting the timelessness of abstract shapes, using, as his medium, the ephemera of newspapers. And pure abstraction, as Mondrian taught us, intended to transcend the hand of the artist. And yet John's is, again, using a medium that makes us privy to every move of his hand. Which, if you recall, is something that we saw with Jackson Pollock. And taken all together, it's hard not to picture John's at the helm of this boat in the middle of the century, navigating the waters of that kitchen sink. So now that the conceptual neo-dataist with abstract pop art sensibilities thing makes a little more sense, let's talk legacy. An important element of John's work, he believed, was that it was a challenge to abstract expressionism and to its superstars. Both pop art and Dada were boots-on-the-ground movements that actively minimized the presence of the artist. They would point out something about society or the art world and then quietly skulk off into the background while we're left to ponder the consequences of a urinal in an art museum or a silkscreen series of electric chairs. And if you think about it, as cheeky as Magritte's painting of a pipe was, it's still speaking to us directly. It engages with us and invites us into conversation. Abstract expressionists, though, use the canvas as a portal into their own psyches, their own angst. And even if we can empathize with it, a Pollock is about Pollock through and through. It's indexical, meaning that the entire canvas is like one big artist's signature. That's not what Johns wanted. He used letters and numbers and maps and symbols, inert, straightforward, universal images, as a means of lessening art's reliance on superstars, on their angst, and focusing back on us, 
on the very nature of these shapes and the power that comes from our own interpretive minds. Maybe we're not the morons after all. We're the ones being empowered to provide the story, which is a pretty generous thing to let us do. But if there's one thing we can say for sure about the art world, it's that it will have its stars, regardless of the original intention of its artists. Ironically, today, you can recognize a Johns from 50 feet away. No target pun intended. Lisa, all great artists love free food. Check out Jasper Johns. You squeal on me, I'll kill you. Special thanks to Calvin Fisher, Lee Mansky, and the intrepid museum goers at the Art Institute of Chicago. For more information, past episodes, and all of the images, go to thelonelypalette.com or follow us on Twitter, at Lonely Palette, or on Instagram, where I regularly post bonus images from each episode, at The Lonely Palette, or like us on Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And remember that ratings and reviews share us with the world, so if you're inclined, please leave one at Apple Podcasts. And if you've been looking for a way to support the show, but dehydration has just been slowing you down, get your Lonely Palette water bottle by becoming a Patreon supporter. Today's patron of the day holds a very special distinction of being someone I haven't actually met in real life, Brian J. Talby, who decided to give modern art another chance after listening to the podcast, which is pretty much the greatest compliment I could ask for. And you too can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash lonelypalette. Thank you, and especially thank you, Brian. Next time on The Lonely Palette. Um, a bronze sculpture. It's a maybe two and a half, three feet high. It has like flaming heels, very defined muscular elements, um, and a very small head. Dehumanizes, I'd say. It looks kind of unhuman and mechanistic. Does it give you a sense of movement? Yeah, oh, definitely. Leaning forward and striving, um, got places to go, apparently. In a hurry. I mean, this is not just movement, but speed. Yeah.